The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, October 16th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did you see the debate? It sizzled. It shocked the back and forth, the obvious, embarrassing stumbles, and of course, the probing questions. What's the break-even price for a bushel of corn in Iowa this week? Oh, you thought I meant the presidential debate, or what became of it, the dueling towns hall. No, 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 no. That was Ron Steele moderating the Iowa Senate debate between Senator Joni Ernst and her challenger, Lisa Greenfield. Good name for an agricultural candidate. Was Greenfield ripe with knowledge? <laughs> well, a bushel of corn's going for about 368 today, 369. And break even really just depends on the amount of debt someone has. I suspect there's farmers that are breaking even at that price. However, if their yields are down 50%, that's certainly not going to cover it for them. Correct. Or actually, seems correct. I don't know. I buy corn by the peck. Obvs. Here was the incumbent who joined remotely from Washington, D.C., Joni Ernst. What's the break-even price for soybeans in Iowa? You grew up on a farm. You should know this. Uh, I think you had asked about corn, and I, it depends well, I, on... I asked her corn. It depends on what the inputs are, but probably about 550. To be fair, there were technical difficulties, but Ernst did assert that Greenfield got the question wrong. She did not. So I guess they were the sort of technical difficulties that led Ernst to believe that she was correct, but... Her opponent was incorrect, even though her opponent was correct. Those sorts of technical difficulties. At another point, moderator Steve Carlin gave the senator one last chance. Uh, But the price of corn, we'd ask for the price of soybeans from you, senator. You want to take another crack at it? (laughs) No, thank you. She did not. Of course, whatever the price, Greenfield can pay it. She raised $28 million in the last three months. She's ahead by a little bit in almost all the polls. $28 million is quite something. Maybe not when compared to South Carolina Democratic candidate James Harrison, who raised $57 million in the quarter. Maine Senate candidate Sarah Gideon raised $40 million. In Maine, by the way, there are only 820,000 registered voters. It is the highest percentage in the country. But... If we count up all the money that Sarah Gideon will raise in Maine, it's well over $60 million so far. By the end of the campaign, she could give $100 to every Mainer who is registered to vote for her. But, you know, why waste 100 on the Trump diehards? So just give 150 to anyone who would have voted for you, might have voted for you, wasn't going to vote. Just really anyone but the worst of the worst. You literally can't spend that much money in Maine. You can't. They have two TV markets, Portland and Bangor, the 79th and 159th biggest markets in the country. You can't buy enough commercials to spend $60 million or 30-something million dollars this quarter. In fact, you could practically buy an entire station. CBS affiliate WABI and Banger sold for $85 million a few years ago. She might get to $85 million. It is too much money. It makes no sense. Well, it does. I can explain it. It's just that lots and lots and lots of Democrats across the country really want Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham to lose. So they all write a check to whoever is opposing them. And well, a nice lady by the name of Sarah Gideon has just become the fourth biggest industry in the state after L.L. Bean, but head of the Bath Shipworks. It is no way to run an election or a country 
except, I guess, for the alternative, which is letting the Republicans win. On the show today, I spiel about the town's hall to end it all. But first, it's the second half of our interview with NRA defector and de facto whistleblower Josh Powell, author of Inside the NRA, a tell-all account of corruption, greed, and paranoia within the most powerful political group in America. And today, I use our opportunity together to bounce a couple of familiar NRA talking points at Josh and hear his account of what those actually inside the NRA were thinking when Wayne LaPierre and Dana Lash were giving voice to the familiar arguments. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yesterday, we talked to Josh Powell about his journey as a top NRA executive and the misgivings he, as a gun supporter, still has about the methods of his former employer. Today, I wanted to tap Josh as a resource and ask him what he must have been thinking whenever the well-funded lobbying group made public pronouncements about gun violence. So first, the old saw the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. To what extent, Josh, do you and the NRA actually believe that? Honestly, I think that there's a, I think that that's widely believed. I think that, I do believe that that's actually, people actually buy that garbage. And that's just philosophically silly on its face. You know, there's lots of things that can stop bad guys. But why do you say the real question is, why did he say that? Right. Why did why was that the line? Well, that's the line, because that fires people up that the press went berserk. That's all that was. It was an attempt to, you know, the, the you know, the, the raise the pitchforks up on one side and the other side says, you know, just is flabbergasted that, that would possibly say that, you know, after after all these children are gunned down in Sandy Hook, that's your response. Yeah. Well, if they were only pitchforks, I think it would be easier to take. Uh, 
What about the danger of concealed carry and the danger of open carry? The NRA constantly not only uh, downplays the danger, but they say it makes situations safer. Do you know of any um, internal information on that that contradicts their public statements? Well, so there's very good data on the of all the concealed carry holders. So the concealed carry holder movement is somewhat new. You know, before Obama came office, there was about four to five million uh, concealed carry holder members. Now there's an upwards of well over 18. It's probably pushing 20 million now with this year's, with these year's numbers. Now, these folks are truly the, the example of law-abiding citizens, right? They, they go through background checks. They go through tests, all this rigmarole to be able to, you know, conceal their firearm on them. They commit a felony at a rate that's, you know, lower than a police officer in the country. It's less, it's like less than half a percent of all concealed care holders commit a felony. It's a very interesting topic, certainly now in the world that we're living in and what we've seen with, um, you know, the protests this summer and fall. There isn't a lot of data around, you know, does that, how problematic and are those folks, right? Because in essence, they're not in the system, right? It's a, it's, it's somewhat of a weird law that morphed over time. And what I do think is incredibly problematic is the fact that nobody that teaches gun safety, gun handling, protecting yourself with a firearm, any of those courses, any of that training, any of those people would say, go run towards a fight. That is, it's the opposite. It's run away from the fight. Do everything you can possibly do. And at the last moment, if you have to, and your life depends on it or your family's life depends on it, then use your firearm. And what we're seeing now is, you know, the opposite in this tragedy in in Kenosha where the young man had his rifle and, and he was, unfortunately, he was looking for a fight. And, you know, it is, it is, you know, concern is very concerning at, at the least on, on, on that topic. I, mean, I don't think there's anybody in the country that would disagree with that. After a mass shooting, the NRA and NRA affiliated politicians will frequently say and tweet out, well, ne- let us not talk about legislation or fixes. Now is not the time. Let us not politicize this tragedy. Did anyone at the NRA ever say anything or were you privy to any conversations about that sentiment? The usefulness of that sentiment, how long can we keep expressing this sentiment, or maybe they really do honestly believe it? Oh, I think that there's definitely a real honest belief around that. And, and, and really, the problem with that is, is that, that in the meantime, like, what we should be doing as a nation on both sides, including the NRA, is talking about real solutions to gun crime in this country. And it's a very complicated topic to solve. You have kind of three big buckets. You have mass shootings, you've got suicide, and you have what the the violence in, in a number of inner cities in this country. And that, that kind of, if you take all that, that's the problem. And each one of those requires a very different tailored solution to fix them. You know, you can't just go and pass a universal background check law that, you know, even everybody would agrees wouldn't have any effect on any of the mass shootings that take took place in the past you know, 15 years. So there's, there is, there's no little silver bullet to fix all this. And it's, it's going to take a lot more than 
Um, it's going to take a lot more time and effort and thoughtful thinking to come together at both sides to really honestly talk about how do we solve this problem and, and to even, a, you know, a, a agree that there's a problem. There's many folks in the area that thinks there is no gun violence problem whatsoever, you know, which is absurd. You know, it just, you know, look no further than I know I mentioned Chicago a lot, but that's that is a fact. Um, and so I would steer the answer, you know, very much towards that's where we should be heading as a, as a nation. And I don't, and I don't see, you know, movement on either side to think through a very thoughtful um, answer to some of these issues that we're facing. You know, nobody asked the simple question of why does a young man decide to pick up you know, a nine millimeter Glock and go and done gun down his classmates is a last resort. And, and how, why did he get here? And why did we know about all this and not do anything about it? Those questions are typically not dealt with, right? Cause that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't sell on your show, right? They want to hear, you know, if we're going to ban this or say no, well, that, that gets, you know, that's a tweet. So this is what I've said. This is what I've said about the AR-15. And I will concede it is not the gun. It is literally not the cause of the gun that causes such carnage. But there is a correlation between the biggest and largest and most egregious mass shootings and this one weapon. And I do think that if you were to take this weapon away, those shooters would reach for another equivalent weapon. But I wonder if that equivalent weapon would each round would have the kind of force that an AR-15 or an equivalent rifle has. I wonder if it would be as easy to have uh, multiple magazine, um, multiple round magazines. But the biggest thing is, I wonder if there would be that lore and that allure, just like so many of these shooters, you know, pretend to be soldiers or pretend to be a special ops guy and put on, wear black and put on the bulletproof vests. And they grab this AR-15, which reminds them of a weapon of war. Maybe there is some, you know, chemical going on inside their brain that is drawn to this weapon to commit the most heinous crimes. So as, a, as an AR-15 owner, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting the way you frame the question up. Um, I hadn't exactly thought of it that way, and so a few things come to mind, you know, on this is that, you know, nowadays nobody's using an AR-15 in the military. That's been replaced by you know lots of other variants of of that with you know basically variants of a of a rifle of much higher calibers that you know have replaceable magazines. So, yeah, you know, it's been replaced by pictures in folks' minds already. I think that what's made the AR-15 incredibly accessible is the fact that it's patent. It was basically a gun that the, the license was opened up and anybody could make an AR-15. It was like open IP, if you will. That's why it became so um, available and, and, and the fact that people could, you know, build pieces and parts onto it. So I completely understand the argument that there's going to be something else that replaces it. It's one of the things in this debate where we've sort of, you know, it's sort of the Darth Vader of guns. I get what you're saying, but I also know the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there's also 20 million of these things floating around and in millions and tens of millions of magazines. And I don't really, I don't view it as an effective 
uh, answer to this. And also we've got, you know, of all the homicides that take place in this country, it's like less than half a percent are committed with an AR-15. Now, granted, there are the larger shootings and about 50% of those are with AR-15s. And the other part, just from a political standpoint and actually solving this problem, you know, it, it, take, it would take so much political capital. The Supreme Court would flip it over and we'd be back to not really solving the problem. And so I, I think that there's other solutions that can be, you know, implored that would make a much larger difference. But I totally understand, you know, your question about it. So the last thing I want to ask about is gun registration and gun licensing, which in places that support it, which are a different kind of politics than maybe places that don't, does show to have some effect. Now, the NRA opposes gun registration and licensing. One of their arguments were, well, a criminal is not going to license a gun. Yes, we know, but a criminal is not going to also, you know, light. You get licensed to drive a car, and you could say that a car thief is not going to license oneself to drive a car, but that doesn't mean we don't have car licensing. What's the thought? So the public argument against licensing is something about privacy and the government will track you and you are giving up your rights if uh, there is a gun licensing regime. Plus, they will also argue that it won't have an effect on crime. What's the reality within the NRA about gun licensing and registration? Well, I think you summed it up pretty good. And then, and then you have to tack on the historical uh, reference of, well, that's what happened in Germany. You know, that's what happened in, in. Yes, of course. Right. So people go see. And, and I, I understand that. I don't necessarily, you know, I, I don't necessarily need the government to, you know, know exactly where I am and what firearms I have. Um, at the same time, I think that, you know, I need to go through a pretty rigorous uh, test to be able to carry a firearm on me every day. And I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. I think that part of the problem with this is much of what we talk about, and even in our conversation, right, because that's what's talked about, is much of that isn't really getting at how are we going to solve this problem and, and driving in and really driving into how, how do we stop this? How do we actually stop these mass murderers, right? If we know these guys are going to commit almost all of these folks, we knew that they were going to commit a, a a really atrocious crime, that they were mentally unstable. Their household wasn't great. The FBI had visited, in many cases, you know, these homes multiple times. And, and how does this happen? And, and one of the things that I talk about is how, you know, the idea of, of opening the discussion, and this will really freak people out of applying similar tactics that uh, law enforcement, intelligence agencies use to stop terrorists. They're very effective, incredibly effective. And I've spoken with a number of those folks and they believe that they could really clamp down on this because it's almost every one of these guys lets people know. They're all crying out for help, right? I mean, Wayne labels them as monsters, but they're sick human beings. They need help. And how do we identify these guys and, and help them before this ever happens or make sure that, you know, their firearms are locked up in their home if you have an Adam Lanza situation, which should have happened. Um, and and we, we don't spend enough time talking about, you know, bigger, broader solutions that are, that are multi-tiered. None, none of, the, none of the, the talking points everybody has solves 
are real solutions by themselves, right? There's a lot of pieces and parts to this. And, you know, our politics doesn't allow the room to unpack most of these in a way that doesn't become, you know, a political issue. You would think that when it comes to, you know, saving lives or even this pandemic we're in, that we could, you know, somehow keep it, you know, apolitical, but, you know, here we are. Well, maybe it's because of the NRA's absolutist stance to say our politics doesn't allow for it. I think after Sandy well, that's, Hook, that's, that's and that's exactly the point. That's exactly. Yeah, I think I think that there are a lot of, especially Democrats who represent people who like guns, who wanted compromise solutions. But when the NRA won't compromise on anything, we could blame our politics. But it's really the one side of the. There's definitely people within the Democratic Party who would like there not to be a Second Amendment. But since there is one, I think a compromise could exist. It's just that one of the sides of the negotiation will not compromise on anything. Well, that's exactly right. It's hard to compromise when the answer is no. It's it's just, it's obviously not going to happen. If the answer is no, then we're not talking. I mean, who goes into an argument with their wife and just says, no, you're wrong. That's it. End of story. And and that is my, you know, one of my overarching points in the book is that the NRA should be a leader on solving this stuff. And because of the way it's marketed itself and raise money and become this fringe operation, you, it's not representing, you know, how 100 million gun owners feel about background checks or a number of these issues that we talked about. They're representing a, a small percentage of, of the country. And what, what and I do want to, I know we have just a couple of minutes, but, you know, what people fail, what politicians kind of fail to recognize in this is that the NRA isn't some big bad organization that you know, uh, you know, can make sure that you know people get voted for and, and that they whisk them into the office. People need to understand that they care about. There are folks out there that it's part of their culture. It's the way they grew up. They firearms are are part of their lives, and they're going to vote on this. Like this is their issue, and so regardless of you know if the NRA you know completely craters this year, or next year, or the year after these folks are not going anywhere. This is their issue. And I think there needs to be a little bit of recognition on, on the other side that, okay, I, I, I need to at least put myself in these people's shoes and understand how they feel about it. But I guarantee you all of those people, you know, feel very strongly about uh, that there should be a more solution oriented NRA. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the year of like, why don't you guys give an inch from fellow gun owners? The name of the book is Inside the NRA, a tell-all account of corruption, greed, and paranoia within the most powerful political group in America. And we're speaking with Joshua L. Powell, who is the former chief of staff and senior strategist of the NRA. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump and Joe Biden had dueling banjo-style town debates. Here's how it sounded. This was Biden. Da-da, ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Da-da, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. And here was Trump. Ding, 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 Anyway, Joe Biden treated the chance to talk to voters as a chance to talk to people whose vote he wanted. He ended most interactions by reinforcing that he was there to serve, even when moderator George Stephanopoulos was doing some business. I hope I answered your question. I hope I answered your question. I don't know if I answered your question. Biden was what we might call other-oriented. I searched the transcript, and he said you or your 
238 times in his town hall. Donald Trump said, you were your 180, but mostly in exchanges like this. This so is a little you bit ready? of a dodge. Are you, wait, are you listening? I denounce white supremacy. Okay. What's your next question? You th- or like this. Our democracy. How can you say that? You do read newspapers. I do. You do watch the news. Yes, I know you read the I news, do. but you watch it. I do. Savannah Guthrie, the moderator there, are doing an excellent job holding Trump accountable asking about his rejection, but also professed ignorance about QAnon. I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard, but I know nothing about it. They believe it it is a satanic call run by the deep state. Study the subject. I'll tell you what I do know about I know about Antifa and I know about the radical left and I know how violent they are and how vicious they are. And I know how they are burning down cities run by Democrats, not run by Republicans. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. Why not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. Knows nothing, denying it three times, three times, like Simon, denying three times that the cock crowed his knowledge of Christ himself, which is, of course, being noted on the QAnon conspiracy boards. Let's examine the presidential defense. Don't know him. I just don't know him. Well, he was asked about them on August 19th, said... He didn't know him, except for one fact. Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much. Okay. Then his staff was all asked about them, really grilled about QAnon and how could he say that? And the staff claimed, I don't know how he doesn't know him. So he's had months to learn about them, but still he refuses to find a fact, read an article. No, he has learned one thing about QAnon. They don't like pedophilia, but still he denounces them without knowing anything about them, except that they are some anti-pedophilia group. So maybe he was denouncing the Department of Homeland Security's anti-child trafficking arm. Who's to say? Certainly not him. That was disturbing, but possibly not to your average voter, who, by the way, polls show actually don't know who QAnon is or what it is or why it is. But voters know masks, and they know Trump is not exactly a proponent of masks. And if they didn't know, they certainly found it out last night. I'm good with masks. I'm okay with masks. I tell people wear masks. But just the other day, they came out with a statement that 85% of the people that wear masks catch it. So you know, They this didn't is say that. I know that study. That's, 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 that's what I heard, and that's what I saw. That's what I saw. You're the president. You can't just pass along a half-absorbed segment from Fox News. Except he can and does all the time. And by the way, Fox News, that is where it was from. Masks? What kind of person covers his face in public? Well, let's see, armed robbers do that. So do Klansmen and radical Wahhabists. That was Tucker Carlson in the intro to his discussion of this study. In other words, almost everyone, 85%, who got the coronavirus in July was wearing a mask and they were infected anyway. So clearly this doesn't work the way they tell us it works. Clearly someone's been lying to us, many people actually. How did this happen? Okay, I can answer that. Working backwards, they don't work the way they tell us they work. Yes, they do. Because what the experts have always told us is that unless it's a 
N95 mask. Masks aren't a great protection against acquiring the virus. What they do is they're effective in spreading the virus. So the proper reaction to the study is, well, at least those infected people were wearing masks because it's less likely that they went on to affect others. By the way, it was a small group. It was 149 people. And by the way, the uh, 85% of them wearing masks, meaning 15% non-mask wearers, that is double the population as a whole. Also, we should note that those 149 people, besides being extra non-mask wearing, also were much more likely to dine out in restaurants. So this was actually a good study that told us useful things, just not the lies perpetuated by Tucker Carlson and expounded upon by Donald Trump. Now let's get to the people are lying to us part. Yes, you are, Tucker, or at least you're misrepresenting the data. And the president becomes the classic misinformation super spreader. He tells the lie on national TV, and he's been telling it at rallies as he goes along, saying 85% of mask wearers got COVID. No, 85% of the COVID sufferers in this one study wore masks. It's different. If 85% of mask wearers got COVID. Well, 92% of Americans polled by National Geographic said they've worn masks. So 85% of 92 is 78% of Americans. He'd be saying that 257 million Americans have the coronavirus. The numbers are obviously off, makes, makes no sense. Still, he says them, and it creates confusion. But here's the other thing it creates, and this is important because we're a couple weeks till the election, or we are during the election right now in many places. It doesn't just create confusion, it creates antipathy. Because the polling on masks is clear. Like I said, 92% of people wear them. And the vast majority of people wearing them don't mind wearing them. I mean, they don't like the pandemic, but they think masks are an appropriate thing to wear during the pandemic. You know, two-thirds of people, or 60% to two-thirds, believe that mask wearing should be mandated. So when President Trump goes out there and belittles masks and contradicts himself and contradicts the effort, the effort that they, the American people, are making sacrifices for, they get mad. And it's a tangible issue that they disagree with the president on. This is no missile attack on Syria or pardoning Roger Stone, where they might like it, they probably don't like it, but it doesn't really affect them much. No, this is life and death. This is personal. And this is an area where they judge the president to not just be making wrong policy, but to be lying and endangering the people they love. And contrast that with Joe Biden's stance. Wear the mask. Yeah, it's pretty clear. It's pretty stark. The mask issue is, in short, a horrible political stance for the president and one that plays a big role in his status as an unpopular incumbent and one who is unlikely, maybe we could say very unlikely, to be denied re-election. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He knows the break-even point for a hectare of sorghum is a trick question. Because sorghum bends, it doesn't break. Margaret Kelly, GIST producer, can cite corn prices by the bushel or the peck, but she knows a hug around the neck goes for $1 at the kissing booth at the state fair or a cool $5 million in the lawsuit years later. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She knows that what it takes to stop a bad spell check program with a gub 
is a good spell check program with a hun. The gist. I don't know the Manson family. Don't know him. But they like the Beatles. They're a good band, but I don't know him. And I don't know Pol Pot. Do not know him. But without him, we wouldn't have The Killing Field. Sam Waterston, good actor. Just saying. Don't know him. Denouncing. And I don't know cancer of the lymphatic system. Don't know anything about it. Do know that it killed the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. But I really just don't know. Oopro depro depro. And thanks for listening.